Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed, and you're here listening to some of the conversations myself and my co-hosts, Dr. Emma Kennedy, Jessica Rowley, and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation in psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions of consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know and get in touch via email or Twitter. In today's episode, we're speaking with Professor Shalam Farouk from New York University, Abu Dhabi. Before becoming an academic, he worked as an educational psychologist in London for 20 years. He completed his PhD in organisational psychology at Birkbeck College, University of London. He also worked at the Institute of Education, University College London and the University of Roehampton. He's currently a senior lecturer at New York University, Abu Dhabi. Shalan has conducted research on group consultation, the emotional practice of teaching and autobiographical memories with a focus on narrative counselling of adolescents and more recently, normalisation. His publication on group process consultation and teacher emotions continues to have an impact on the work of educational psychologists today. During the episode, we touch on his keen interest in teachers' emotions and his current interest in narrative psychology approaches, which focuses on the autobiographical memories of adolescents excluded from school. It was a pleasure to speak to Shalan today, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. So Shalan, it was absolutely fantastic to get to meet and speak with you today. Um, when we've had people on in the past, where we've really started with is to ask them a little bit about their journey. I... Yeah, I, mean, I did my uh, psychology degree at Sheffield University. I um, we had sort of a little bit of career advice, and somebody came, an AP came to visit us and talked about becoming an educational psychologist. That was really first time I'd heard about educational psychology, so I kind of um, found that really interesting. And um, so I thought I'd I'd then explored it and I became a to, I really wanted to become a ed psych, so I did. Um, I became a teacher first of all because I knew that you had to. In those days, you had to become a primary school teacher, and um, I did that for um, three years. And what became the special needs coordinator, and um, then I got on the uh, Institute of Education course, which okay. was uh, at that time was Ingrid Lunt. Yeah, was yeah. the. Um, was um and um that was a master's training yeah, program yeah. in those days and we did it for one year and uh i remember my placements and i remember them telling me to tell, phone the school and i thought oh, what do you mean phone a school i mean you need to pick up the phone and phone <laughs> you know and it was like it was that kind of stage where i had to kind of um get the confidence to even just phone a school yeah yeah and um and to make an appointment and so that was that was when so i had, uh, made it through and became an SI in enfield yeah and my senior was sue rendell who then okay. uh, became the director of the yeah. coverstock course yeah um and she and it was very, it was actually a child and adolescent mental health service. So we yes, were still in those yeah. days within yeah. within that environment, which was really, yeah. really, really uh, by chance. I was very fortunate for that in Enfield anyway. And um so I did that for about six years, you know, just being an EP. And then I went to Hammersmith. And then Hammersmith, I got a senior, I got it to be an okay. e, senior EP. Mm. And it's in Hammersmith when I had more time, and that's when I did the process consultation. Okay. 
and uh, more work with schools. Um, so I had more flexibility. Yeah, so I, I did that. Um, and then they offered me a job at the Institute um, as an associate tutor, or was, okay. I don't know what, yeah, I think it was called that at the time. Uh, and I worked under Vivian, with Vivian Hill. And I, you know, we managed the transition from the MSc course to the doctoral program. I remember that, doing all that stuff. Um, and uh, so we, we got through that. And then I, in the meantime, I did, did my PhD. Um, and I did that with Birkbeck at the, um, uh, because they had a PhD in uh, more organizational psychology. And there was a guy, and I was interested in emotions, uh, a teacher's emotions. So they had a guy, um, somebody there um, who uh, specialized in uh, motions and organizations. So I worked with him and we did my PhD at, at Birkbeck in the end. And I went to um, and to Birkbeck and then, yeah, then I, when I got my doctorate. I wanted to kind of have experience more of academia. I'd done a, being an EP for a long time. And um, so I, I, I went to Roehampton, which is, was very interesting, very, um, yeah, it was an experience to say the least, but it was, um, uh, and I was more associated with the education department, but I was kind of the psychologist in the education department sort of thing. And that was, mm-hmm. and that enabled me to do further research, actually. For research, it was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ended up here mainly because my wife, she's a Middle Eastern historian, and she was at this at School of Oriental African Studies. So she um, she specialized on the Gulf. So she just looked for jobs, and she got a job. They offered one, her one here, a very good job here, because obviously they wanted to, uh, historians in, uh, of the Gulf in uh, in Abu Dhabi. So um, anyway, so we ended up coming here about uh, four years ago. Your nice. role now, um, what, what, what do you do now? I'm a, I teach on the uh, psychology program. Um, I'm a lecturer on the, um, basically it's a purely psychology program. And I do, um, actually I teach counseling and psychotherapy and I also teach um, cognition. And I teach a course called, because they also have these courses which are sort of for general hindsight, it's called, which is very interesting. It's about autobiographical memories, which I enjoy a lot. Mm, so I get yeah. to teach that. And um, it's, it's a really nice, for research, it's good. They, they give me money for research, which... Uh, which is amazing. Yeah, I know it's kind of <laughs> so. I get money for research, and I get uh, quite a bit of time for it as well. Oh, that's fantastic! Um, so that's well, it's one it. of the. I mean, you know, you've mentioned it already that one of the things that we really wanted to to, to speak with you about and to hear your views on is is your work on emotions for teach a teacher's emotion. And I think right. you know most people working in schools in in the UK and and elsewhere now are quite familiar with the idea of children's emotional development being quite central to to mm-hmm. learning. Um, but teachers' emotional lives perhaps not getting as much attention. Mm. Why does there seem to be such a struggle thinking and talking about teachers' feelings um, at work? Well, um, that's a good question. Well, I think I think um, I think there's not much uh, room for talking about emotions, um, especially in secondary schools. I think it's sort of something you don't. Um, you, 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 I think it is meant to kind of keep it in. Yeah, I think you can't let yourself go, I think is also the idea behind that. Um, you can't, uh, and there's no, um, you're not supposed to also um, inflict yourself on your your emotions, your being upset or anything onto your colleagues. Um, I think there's also a sense of that. It is quite, uh, quite um, in that sense, you're supposed to be able to cope. And of course, teaching is 
quite a lonely profession um, because you've got the you know you're with your stu- your pupils all day long, but you're not with any other adult company. So you you've got this, um, and so I think teachers uh, perhaps used to have more uh, time for each other. They used to have perhaps more collegiality. But I think, um, I don't know if that's reduced a lot these days, because I think this is often, and it's something you can't really, um, it's something, you know, you can't really, it has, you have to have room to create this support for each other. It has to come more, uh, quite naturally in the organization. You know, it's no good having it sort of formalized sometimes. It doesn't kind of work very easily in that way. So that that's, I think, but yeah, emotions aren't meant to come out very much. Yeah. Um- your research looked into anger in teachers and different forms of anger they can experience at school. Yeah, yeah. Could you say a little bit more um, about this? Yeah, yes, yeah, uh, gladly. Um, this is um, because I did a lot. I did a lot of research uh, interviewing teachers. Um, I think my remit was interviewing teachers about their emotions in the last two weeks, and I asked them to focus on anger, pride, guilt, and they and I, and I focused on those because those are the ones that are most to be most commonly experienced so they were kind of um looking back at their emotions and um my main sort of finding was that i i, I kind of what i called um reason um there was a sort of anger that came out of frustration which really kind of built up in the classroom as you couldn't um, get done what you wanted to get done or needed to get done so you had the sort of um restricted anger uh, which was based on really uh, they described it how in the classroom you would um, keep uh, having to say the same thing or you couldn't get done what you wanted to get done and you were under pressure to to move the class on and somebody would, some child would um, would just uh, keep on doing the wrong thing or, or just keep tapping his pencil, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd have this anger or, or some child would just act out and uh, you just, uh, and because you are kind of um, a bit vulnerable at that point, because something else is going on in your life or because you're hungry, you haven't eaten yet, uh, it's just before lunch or it's at the end of the week. So you're kind of more susceptible. And then as you um, as you say to the child, you know, you just stop, sit down. And as, you, almost as you're saying it to the child, you think to yourself, what, what am I doing? Yeah. Um, but it's coming out, it's sort of blowing up and, and, and you regret it and you've, you you regret it afterwards. Um, so that's one form of anger, but that's kind of um, not so deep rooted. Then the other anger, which was mine more in other organisations, but it's more to do with uh, relation to other situations where anger is allowed to kind of um, where there's more reason for it. Like um, the one thing I described in the article is a, is a woman who's uh, where a colleague is getting a promotion, a younger colleague is getting a promotion, and she's uh, unhappy about that. And it's much more elaborated anger because um, it is that, that this woman has got a promotion that thing comes out in a, in a staff meeting and she's got to leave the room because she's so annoyed with it and she then has to, um, she's, she's got to let it go somewhere. And I think the other thing anger is it, it kind of comes out. And I think anger always has to come out at some place. So you go home and you tell your partner about it and they come... And when um, what's interesting about that is it kind of once you talk about anger, it comes back again in a, in a, in a sort of small flame, it's called. And um, if somebody then says to you something like, oh, you know, she deserved the promotion or perhaps she's, you know, it's good on her. You know, then immediately your anger, goes, you know, it, it really just goes right up again. So that, but this elaborated anger is interesting because as you are, um, as your anger is building, you're finding more and more things to, um, to be angry about. 
you know so you, you she starts saying oh she's um she's middle class i'm working class um which is all true it's all true but but um the anger should be directed at the director of the school <laughs> this woman has got the promotion but it's not it's not really her but of course um it's in those so anger was quite interesting so I, i kind of that was one thing i i looked at anger in particular i found it interesting how at schools teachers um in particular sometimes have this anger which is is based on frustration but but the more deep seated anger is more to do with some injustice at the school like like other professions i think no i was just wondering about how how potentially shaming and guilty you know as anybody at work but i think particularly teachers may feel about acknowledging their feelings of that are maybe the slightly less comfortable feelings like anger and when you were doing your interviews whether like a hard thing for them to be able to to speak about i think some people i don't know that i don't think they found it i didn't find that they found it quite nice to have the time and space to talk about it they they realized this was quite a different format i didn't get the sense that they were kind of um finding it difficult no i i, I uh, shame didn't come up much um, we didn't ask i didn't ask them to talk about shame i think shame shame is is quite a tricky one um they didn't find, i think guilt was kind of interesting because um what i found is that uh, as a teacher you can uh, feel guilty for some even in the especially in prime because these were mostly these were i think all primary school teachers so you feel guilty especially in your younger teachers when they've when they when they've upset a child even though they've done the right thing as a teacher so they've made, they've told the child off and they're making the child uh, the child isn't doing his work or whatever and and they're saying okay you're going to stay in at lunchtime for 10 minutes or whatever and they're doing in a way they're doing their job so to speak but they feel guilty because because they basically it's it's um you you feel guilty when you hurt somebody you care about even if you've done something which is um even if it's you've done something that is actually not morally um appropriate in in ter- in, in in as far as the organization is concerned so so you have that guilt particularly at that point so it's kind of unreasonable guilt in a sense because you 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 guilt is usually that you should blame yourself but in this case uh you you shouldn't blame yourself um so so you have these but i mean i suppose you could also say in in um in schools the way they are organized um in some schools you know it's perhaps it's good that that teachers feel guilty in some ways because it, guilt is there to make you do the right thing um that's the that's the kind of purpose of guilt so I, i um so yeah it's quite good that you you have that moral compass and and a kind of um it makes you do the right thing most of the time when when you've done something wrong but yeah that it's quite a, an interesting emotion to sort of uh, to look at yeah in in, in in education in particular yeah um, but but also i suppose quite scary is that when uh, teachers who've been in the job for a long time are really kind of um you know they they become hardened in many ways to any of these things i think they just um, and i think it's a protection mechanism of course if you can't you can't you couldn't sort of uh, experience that emotion all the time you've spoken a little bit about teachers feeling guilt and I guess when I was reading the paper I was kind of struck by it came out in both of your papers one about guilt and um anger about the mismatch between some of the times during educational reforms and their own moral mm-hmm. I guess yeah. values which yeah. seemed really important actually uh, and I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit about that mismatch I, I suppose like um there is in other papers I've talked more about I suppose I've did a paper on teachers going to work in 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 people referral units interview teachers in people referral units and a lot of them came out, left secondary education because they they wanted to have more of a, a relationship with the students with the pu- with their pupils so that was very um they didn't it, it's at, at, at at secondary school in 
particular, you weren't you weren't going to get promoted for getting close to your students. So um, this going to um, approve gave them the chance to really engage with uh, work with students. Now then they often had an idealized view how they were going to be this heroic figure at the Pru was going to rescue all these these excluded kids and they were going to be these heroes and then they find out that you know that this isn't going this doesn't work that way <laughs> and that uh, it, it's that you know but uh, and they they stick with it but it's kind of um and and, and then you have to um then you learn a lot about yourself because you have to um because this pupils at a pupil referral unit kind of press your buttons they they get under your skin they try to basically um I suppose from a psychodynamic perspective, they're testing your trust. So they've had a sort of a life uh, childhood where people couldn't be trusted. So they're testing your trust. So they're they're pushing against you. They're being rude to you, and uh, and you have to kind of develop a sort of resilience to that. And uh, one teacher in particular, she talked about it. She was quite an experienced teacher, and she was kind of one of the deputy heads by this stage. And she said, "Yeah, I've got a really come to resilient to all these sort of you know you this and that you know." But one thing they said to me, then they said to me, "Oh, you old bag, you old you know, you old bag, you old thing. What do you want from?" And this got to her because she said, "I got under my skin because you know I look in the mirror and I think to myself, oh, I'm still the same. I'm still the same.'" And then suddenly these these students are saying these things to me. So you know, she said, "You know that that kind of almost got to me because they." kind of um so she had to kind of um cognize it you know uh, think about it so um yeah i did i did uh, that more in terms of but yeah in, in in secondary schools they um in particular i think you you can't get promoted that way if you want to uh, if you want to have a career uh, going all the way then you, you you focus on the curriculum or you focus on something else but you certainly don't focus on uh, vulnerable children mm-hmm. I mean, we were we were thinking as well a little bit, Shalan, about whether you know the the point around anger and elaborated anger and this idea mm-hmm. of you know can often be colleagues and those that you work with. And we were wondering mm-hmm. a bit about if any of the the people that you've either in the research or, or elsewhere have had feelings about educational psychologists or other people coming in and you know well-meaning wanting to kind of advise help support how how permissible or how able are teachers to be able to talk about their feelings when with the best of intentions that's help or support Mm. isn't helpful or you know can be can be really difficult for the teacher i think it's very it's a it's one of the biggest challenges is to um get the time and to really sit down with the teacher and just let uh, and, and and have them talk to you in a kind of relaxed way teachers are used to problem solving uh my, my they're used to quick problem solving they're not used to sitting back and uh just opening up their minds, opening up what they're talking about. I mean, that takes time. And to, that's been one of the biggest uh, problems, I think, um, in, 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 in as a work as an EP uh, to, to make. But you have to insist on that time. Um, you know, teachers saying, oh, I can talk to you uh, in 10 minutes during the break. And I always say no to that. I say, I'm not going to talk to you 10 minutes during the break, especially because they're going to be doing something, you know, they, and, and uh, you're going to be in the staff room or whatever. So you you, you definitely have to be in a, in the right space. And that's, and then I found that that um, younger teachers actually were more open uh, in many ways, but but that's a, you know a bit too much of a generalization, I suppose. And again, with secondary schools, I think it's even more challenging because um, you don't have you have a whole. I mean, and in my article on uh, on working with groups of teachers, you know, I, I did manage to get a group of teachers together to to talk about 
class eight or, or whatever the, the name of the class was and have regular sessions, but that, that got very much um, side, uh, overrun by by other meetings being arranged at the same time later on. So, you know, it wasn't uh, prioritized. It, all I can say is it, it's a challenging task to uh, to get teachers uh, and to, to work with them. But I think it's something, the other thing I'd like to do is always, and I don't know if people do that, is that you see uh, what I did built in was, you know, if I come to school regularly, I'd always follow up with the teacher the next time. So I, we always have a sort of follow-up visit. So we kind of know. So I said, okay, we're going to do this and this, or I'm going to do this and you're going to do this. And then when we, and I want to want to come back in two weeks, and I'm going to talk to you again. So there kind of was an emphasis on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's that point about bringing groups together and working with them. Your the paper that you wrote on um, process consultation groups in in 2004. Mm-hmm. Where did the interest in groups come from? I think I always found uh, uh, I found group works interesting from, from when I was doing psychology. But I I, um, I got into it really because I had an opportunity of doing this with the school. Um, they were they were really struggling and um, and but the deputy head was um, very much on my on on board with me. We worked well together and um, we. We then got a group together and we what we really basically did with the group is is really hammer out a behavior policy for the school or basically a system for the school that's when I started doing group work so so we were able to really um, work out a policy that everybody would agree on and that was how I got started on doing working with groups of teachers and then we launched it and it really brought down the number of uh, exclusions in the school um, not term you know they didn't do permanent exclusions they had more kind of temp, uh, short term exclusions I, mean, I think they had yeah so that's how i started with that and then i i now kind of got interested in that subject basically from then onwards yeah i also sort of mentioned i like the work of gera hanko that was also what got me going yeah yeah she was she was that was a very impressive uh she was very impressive at the time in terms of describing working in schools. that was also what influenced me um in the paper you spoke a lot about um the need to account for teachers bringing their own perceptions and emotional needs and personal drivers to group work. Mm-hmm. At the same time, um, it's not always clear whether those whether those who work with teachers are fully equipped to manage the group dynamic. Um, I was just wondering, what is it about teachers in groups that you would want people to pay attention to? Oh, okay. That's a, a, I mean, the only thing I can say is really that, um, I think I, I wrote that up in the paper as well, is that, well, I don't think there's anything special about teachers being, I always didn't really like that to see teachers as a sort of special breed of human being. So I, I think that the, the biggest issue was actually to get them to relax and to discuss something without trying to find solutions very early on and, and, and feeling that they have to kind of get this over and done with and, and, and then move on to the next thing so that would be one thing that I particular that's particularly to to the school environment uh, that, that that is important to remember and the other thing was really to keep them on or um, focused on the task basically to kind of make sure that they'll be kind of staying on the task of what we were meant to be doing at this stage yeah so that's what that's all I can say at, the, at this point yeah what I can remember from it thinking about the school system as well about the pressure that many teachers are under and that you know you've mentioned about mm. you know curriculum and there's a assessment and all sorts of different things that may be going mm. on for for teachers is space mm. for themselves I guess and you've attended to mm. that about where yeah, is the space yeah, for feelings yeah. but also this idea that solve this problem 10 minutes in your lunch hour, you know it's not even lunchtime yeah. for you you're you're doing yeah. some other thing yeah. and that then you know for Zara in training and for newly qualified and even for people who are very experienced the pressure then on the facilitator of the group or the educational psychologist whoever it might be 
to kind of respond immediately to we haven't got the time for this it's not we have time for the children and we absolutely want to make it work Mm -hmm. for them Mm -hmm. but we've also got to make all these other things happen and just recognizing the the sort of dynamic there that the the pressure to go quicker uh, may not be named but it definitely is there and the facilitator really does Mm -hmm. have to be able to hold a bit of space for It's yeah. okay to slow it down and to try and mm. reflect a little bit more together mm. about about what might be going mm. on. Well, that's very hard. I, I find that hard myself because you have to have a certain authority, yeah, uh, uh, to do that. And, and and then you're kind of you are at the end of the day still dependent on the on the on the school because if the ethos of the school is really n- n- that, how how is this group perceived by the school? Is it going to make a difference as well? Is it seen as something that worthwhile attending, or is it something that you know could be just sidetracked, or is it's precious, or whatever? It, it really depends on the ethos of the school on how much progress you can make in that. Yeah, alliance with the leadership in terms yeah. of you know the deputy head, the relationship that you had with them. It sounds like that was a factor in making this work work. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. I I I, had, I was lucky with. Uh, um, with him, uh, he, I mean, he was incredibly able. But he, he, I mean, it was uh, lucky. It is always important to have the leadership on board, and and uh, that otherwise you're not going to go anywhere. But even sometimes I've had the leadership on board, and then somebody else kind of uh, the deputy had sabotaged it, and the head didn't. Have, you know, it, 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 things can go on in these organisations that you're not aware of, and then you suddenly, when it sort of hits you from the side, you realise um, what's happening. But it's kind of it, that that's that's a, that's really the tricky bit about working with schools, I think, in this sense. Yeah, I'd also like to say that things have changed in schools, in my opinion. Things have um, exclusions have gone up. I mean, I think this is a huge issue now. I'm with that there. Um, and, and, and what I think is about that is also becomes the norm. It becomes normal. It becomes suddenly, and if you uh, teach it, it's, it's, certain things become normal. That that so many children are excluded becomes normal. So I I I, I think that's um, that's gone the wrong way in my opinion. Yeah. And then with the groups themselves that you and am I right in thinking the the consultancy groups you ran were a lot in secondary school? No, I did in in as it some. In, Secondary, but mostly in primary schools. Yeah, okay. I was more okay. kind of a, the secondary school. I found tricky. I think I did that in my. I did, I did, that wasn't easy because it is difficult to get um, the, the teachers together. I found it tricky. Mm, yeah. Um, no. I, yeah. I mean, I think Zara yeah. and I would just love to hear a little bit more about the consultation groups themselves, about mm. kind of what kinds of things were coming up. How yeah. did you? the sort of problem solving idea with the relationship with the adults and a focus on supporting the adult and how the group itself, was it helpful in that sense? Was it able to be supportive to group members? They, I mean, there wasn't, I don't think there was any particular uh, strong theme to think. And I I think there was um, often, as I think I mentioned that is also that uh, home situation would be brought up as the, causation of the difficulty and um so i would um, then be focusing on what the school okay that's fine but what or how can we support the child in school what can we do about that so that would be one thing that that would be bringing on i'd also be drawing on i mean teachers um expertise teachers do have a lot of expertise and then the, the more senior colleagues do have that um, and they can also support so there was a lot around supporting one another and um being able to draw on su- supporting one another in in the school I, th- I think that what I also kind of um, encouraged more was um, to to kind of um, spend more time um, with the child often kind of just 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 being and, uh, and, and what I did in secondary schools which were more which, which I didn't have enough time of was just to be 
more, I mean, it's very simple things, just, just being more generally more positive to the child, you know, noticing when things are going well, etc., all that kind of stuff. It wasn't anything that was that sophisticated, but it, it kind of worked in many ways. Okay, so just so that there's a new image built up in, 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 that, in that sense for the child. I mean, I'm doing more, um, I mean, what I found more interesting is the work I am did with um, adolescents more in terms of their narratives more recently. Um, that, that was a kind of an interesting journey for me because I, I interviewed, um, I got some research fund from the Nuffield Foundation and I did research and I wanted to look at uh, an interview adolescents who were excluded from school about their narratives. And I thought, oh, they'll tell me their autobiographical narratives about education. And then I found that they didn't really have a narrative. You know, they didn't, they, they did have, because they've never, um, they've never been asked to tell their life story Story, obviously you know they never because you don't you, they've never actually had anybody sit there listen to their story and that uh, so that was really interesting because so we, we co-constructed me and them what I did was I, con- I um, got their life story but we did it together I recorded it and then I wrote it up and then uh, the next time I saw them I would go through the story with them and that's kind of that was actually and I thought this is this is actually going to be useful for therapeutic purposes because you then have a platform uh, from which to move on from so that's how I got started with with that side of things and then I this was focused on secondary school and again we found it difficult to work with the schools but we had some interesting cases and we did um, this was me and a youth worker in um, in Brighton when we worked together because he, he had a very different kind of connection to, to young people and he wanted he said that um, we have to start with the home visit challenge uh, and, and I'm in Ed Psych. I never go, you know, I go home visits, but I usually am in schools, right? So I was kind of home visit. Okay, you have to start with a home, uh, and, and so because he was so so, it was interesting. Because we, I we did I started with home. I got a different perspective. I started with a home visit, and he says you got to get the parents' story about their schooling and their experience of school. So you get the sort of backstory of of, of, of the children, and then we um, did some work, we did work in schools with. Uh, this was now 13, 14 year old at risk of exclusion. So that was kind of good to do that. And then we did um, an intervention, which you could call a counseling or consultation, but we did this intervention with one, with the uh, special needs coordinator. But we, we did this really focusing on, on them telling their story. And what was, what we really used actually, which was very useful was their primary school. So what we realized is that primary school was nine times out of 10 would be like, um, positive primary school was good and you realize that a primary school they're being nurtured uh, there isn't as primary school is a community it's not us and them you know us being the pupils them being the teachers it's the community so they have there is none of this um teachers on one side and pupils on the other you had this real sense of being looked after um okay they were they were basically seen as naughty children and they were kind of and you just you you'd be picked up again the next day so they, they often i mean i don't want to idealize it too much, but basically the primary schools, they were okay. But secondary, once they got to uh, year nine, when, you know, serious work kicks, they just couldn't cope. They, they, they still needed that. They still needed that, that uh, to being taken care of. They, they really needed that uh, one-to-one. And they, they found it really difficult to cope with this secondary school environment, a lot of them. But we wanted to kind of recre- reproduce for them, basically, you know, this relationship they had primary school. Let's move on. Let's remember how you got on with teachers and let's let's try and uh, move on from there. So it was, that was, a, I think that was, that's an intervention I'd like to try, try again, actually.
And that when you were doing the thing around the, it's fascinating about the the memory and the kind of mm. being able to tell one story. Yeah. It it just they didn't have a story. It, it felt really hard for them to articulate. It's actually not unaccept. It's actually um, if you're looking at the literature on um, on, on identity, if you look Eric Erickson on on adolescence identities, and uh, research has been done since then. You don't really have um, what what he called the identity for an emerging adult world, which is the kind of you know what am I going to do with my life kind of thing. Mm. And you don't have that until you're sort of 22, 23. You know, univer- people at university are still trying to find out yeah. what they want to do with their life. Yeah. But, and they're kind of constructing. And as you're doing that, you're kind of constructing your story as well because the backstory informs your future. So these, these students, um, okay, even, I think even with um, children who aren't, you know, considered to be troublesome, and even then they're, they're not really used to uh, necessarily telling their story as such or having a story like that. Mm. They'll have lots of things that have happened to them, but they haven't perhaps had to tie them together or that sense, yeah. So I think that's quite an interesting intervention to do with, with this age group, yeah. And also what, what you point out is, what I have found is, is you point out these patterns that they have of behaviour, which are kind of also, of course, themes, and that you can work on those. You know, you keep doing the same thing. Have you noticed? You keep... <laughs> so it's kind of um, nice to point that out. And you think that's missing in something like that there hasn't been a person to help make the connection that have you noticed in the work that you've been doing with them that there was just, yeah, that that mind with your mind just trying to help you make the kind of, oh, well, actually, that's the fifth time. That yeah. No, no, definitely happened. not. Definitely not. Definitely not. No connection there. I mean, you, you can see that, you know, you 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 know you you that you've got this little dance with this particular teacher has happening again i mean you know especially if it's sort of quite far apart and things and when they get into trouble that connection is not 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 really there or, or, or that they're always always blaming somebody else would be another thing you know you keep note you know keep things things keep happening to you and you're never to blame kind of stuff is kind of another is, is obviously another one yeah it doesn't have to be the same person you mentioned earlier on about teaching being you know it's a hugely isolating role I mean a lot of the time you're in your classroom you're on your own it's a physically mm-hmm. kind of isolating but potentially also quite psychologically isolating yeah. and with the quite you know, a very high demand intellectually on you as a teacher, emotionally, very high demand on you too. Are there particular things that you would say to trainee consultants, you know, trainee EP taking up kind of the consultancy role or people who are using consultation in schools that might help a bit more in in supporting teachers more effectively through groups consultation groups yeah i mean i'd like to say that you you well you make the time to see teachers you work with teachers sometimes you will come out of school and you will feel that you've kind of assimilated a lot of their uh, you, you walk away some with some of their um, emotions and their and their feelings and i think that's something to think about that you kind of um but you're doing um but if you do talk to you and get that time, I think you're doing an excellent service to teachers. If you if you if you if you give them the time and let them talk about this about that about the children that they that they're um, that they're working with. But I, I found it very uh, it is a tough job. I think it, it's perhaps underestimated how how hard it is to be an EP. I think that's that's I think I think think um, I always found it um, a a hard job. And um, I remember when I had a trainee with me once, I was I sort of rang the bell to get into the primary school. And as I walked in, I said, "It's show time." <laughs> and the, the P said to me, "Oh, you think it's a show? You think it's a pretense?" And I said, "Well, 
it is you know you have to be you have to be mr wonderful you have to be listening you have to be you know you have to be accepting and you have to be on on your guard and things like that so that's what i was referring to but i i think you you are a kind of there really to uh, to 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 listen and, and and listen a lot to people's issues and problems and and and, and just be able to take it and assimilate them yeah i actually have a bit of a question which goes back to your work about um with adolescents and i was just wondering if some of the work that you've done with adolescents has kind of changed the way you look at consulting with secondary schools or impacted it in any way? Um, yeah, I, I've, um, what, all, the only thing we have done in this respect is we've, um, and this again, this comes from, from working with a youth worker. He said, you know, when you, when you work with the adolescents, you know, you just need to, uh, you need to use different forms of communication and things like that. So we, you know, I'd have the, I'd have the meeting with them, with the adolescents, I'd do that. And then I'd text them and then we use text messaging and to say, you know, remember we've agreed this and this, or email. So, so he was really kind of innovative in this, and also texting the parents. So, you know, is that, that that was kind of interesting for me. And and I would also communicate to the teacher. The only thing I would we would do with teachers is basically, um, you know, if we had intervention that that we wanted a teacher's agreement on, and that they would, you know, see what uh, congratulate the child, see how the child was doing at the end, and end of the class, notice them and say, you know, how well they've been in the class, etc., that sort of thing. Um, but that's in a secondary school is already something something good good for the pupil to you know, to be able to achieve that yeah um, as we're just kind of coming towards the end really mm-hmm. um we sort of try to ask our guests if there was one book or article or something that you read either in training or, or when you were practicing as an educational psychologist that you thought gosh I wish I'd read this from the very beginning, or it, it had a really big impact on your practice. Is there something that you particularly recommend to our listeners? I have to think about that. That's uh, well, I, I, um, I mean, anything on um, I've read things, but particularly on on narrative therapy, I find narrative the works on narrative therapy very interesting. So, if you wanted to start with that, you could look at uh, well, basically Jerome Bruner, who who worked on this uh, from the beginning in the nineteen, you know, in the nineteen seventies, I think. And anything to do with with um, and there's a lot of articles on uh, adolescence and and um, on the narrative selves of adolescence. So the sort of the creation of identity in adolescence. That's sort of now that's a developing phase. I think those kind of things are very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned um, Gerda Hanko's work, and yeah. obviously the the model that you developed yeah. drew on on her work and and the work of Edgar Schein. Yeah. Um, and I sometimes don't. I wonder whether you know the really kind of classics sometimes mm-hmm. don't get as much. It's always like or something new or different. But actually, mm-hmm. there is a lot to be said for work that's been there for a for a really long time that could be maybe applied in a different way. I mean, consultation as a process. Um, has got mm-hmm. real, yeah, really brilliant application for the work mm-hmm. that we do and, and work yeah. in schools yeah. and elsewhere. Yeah, I think Ella Hanko was, um, right, I think she kind of had this idea of, of getting more objective. Um, I think nowadays we talk more about finding a different kind of interpretation, which is more useful. I think this is sort of a subtle change. I think she has absolutely had this idea that there's going to be some some truth um, but anyway that's that's I mean that's 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 perhaps one shift I think is sort of to see things and let's look at something which some other way of seeing things which are which are helpful in this particular case yeah Mm -hmm. Mm. I just wanted to say thank you so Mm. much it's been an absolute pleasure to to speak with you Mm. and some really interesting things kind of coming up and going through my mind already so thank you very much okay thank you for having me thank you